So the scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3. And the word of the Lord says this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks a lot to everybody for being here today. Appreciate the, uh, the prayers, the Lord's Supper talk and the songs. Um, we've been looking at uh, Isaiah 40 to consider um, kind of a theology of Advent. Uh, and by that, we mean uh, what it means to anticipate God's arrival, to, to really believe in his coming, even when we're surrounded by darkness, the kind of darkness that uh, Dub was referring to and Don before him this morning. You know, the people of ancient Judah, despite all the horrors they faced, are still told to, uh, told, behold, the Lord comes. Um, hold on one second. There we go. Um, this, this, this verse is uh, kind of the, the theme verse of this whole series. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 10. And, and they're, though they're struggling with, you know, this prospect of captivity and this idea that maybe their God isn't in charge of things. There's been a lot of destruction and disorder uh, at the hands of pagans, but they're still told the Lord is coming. The Lord comes. Behold, Isaiah 40, verse 10, the Lord comes. And we face darkness ourselves um, from, uh, you know, pa a pandemic to the various personal struggles that we, we go through from economic hardship to, you know, just this week, um, a foreign hack against uh, many different government institutions and corporations. I mean, there's just no limit, it, it appears, uh, in this broken world to the kinds of darkness that we might face. And, and speaking into uh, such darkness, Isaiah 40 still says, and it says resolutely, the Lord is coming, the Lord comes. So as we saw in lesson one, just to recap briefly, we're to wait on him to come. And then in our second lesson last week, we talked about learning to behold God, to be more intentional about what we uh, contemplate, about the kinds of thoughts that we focus on and meditate on. And now, centuries after Isaiah, the words of Isaiah 40 get invoked again, um, this time at the cusp of a new age. Um, a figure called John the Baptist appears in the wilderness of Judea, and he appears with a message that all four of our Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, tell us fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 40. So Isaiah 40's ultimate message and our final message in this series is basically to prepare for God. We talked about waiting on God, beholding God. And so this morning we want to talk about preparing for the Lord's arrival. So if we truly believe the Lord is coming, we will be people who actively prepare for that arrival. So what we want to look at for a few minutes this morning in this last lesson on Isaiah 40 is its fulfillment and this final idea of what 
preparation looks like. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Luke chapter 3, verse 4 says, quoting Isaiah 40, prepare the way of the Lord. So what does preparation look like? Let me suggest, first of all, it suggests it, it, it looks like expecting things, expe expectation. Uh, and we should be people who have a kind of open expectation as the people of God. God is a God of great surprises. Um, we should expect, we might say, to, uh, to see the unexpected happen. Um, it's not going to always you know, come by rational means or means that we would anticipate or find intuitively consistent. You know, um, expect the unexpected. I mean, think about this. The solution, after all, in Isaiah 40, uh, picked up in Luke uh, 3, is that, is, is that something's going to come out of the wilderness. And a wilderness wasn't typically a place associated with order and goodness and uh, peace. Wilderness is a place of danger and disorder and uh, hardship and darkness. And yet this wilderness is the place from which the solution is coming cry in the wilderness, prepare a way in the wilderness. And even more unexpected, even more amazing is what God's coming looks like when we finally get to the New Testament, when we finally get to Luke chapter 3. The words of Luke 3 uh, come straight from Isaiah 40. That's something I want us to remember this morning. So if we're going to talk about preaching a series on Isaiah 40, there's no way to do that um, biblically without talking about the birth of Christ, because that's where Isaiah 40 ends up uh, with John the Baptist talking about the entrance of God into the world. So these verses, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and so on, come straight out of the text we've been looking at over the last two weeks. Um, now you'll recall that Isaiah 40 had called the people of God to wait on God's coming describing their God as, as almighty, as the very sovereign of the entire universe. One who, if you remember the language of Isaiah 40, um, held the oceans in his hand. One who created the stars and called them out uh, one by one, uh, naming them as he did. Um, in Isaiah 40, verse 5, we read this promise that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. The, a day is coming when everybody, all flesh, shall see this glory of the Lord. And so this, this being in Isaiah 40, this God who's coming is none less than the one who created and sustains the entire cosmos. Um, he is a God of unspeakably weighty glory. That's the one who's coming. Now, when God does finally come, when his glory does finally appear, it comes in the form of a vulnerable baby. And so we pick up the story a chapter earlier than the announcement of John the Baptist back in Luke chapter two. Here we read that in the same region, this is Luke chapter two, verse eight. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the, um, in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Notice this, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The angel says, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So <laughs> there's the entrance of this almighty sovereign Lord of the universe into the world. 
He comes as a vulnerable infant wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in an animal feeding trough. And there the angels begin to sing this heavenly song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those in whom he is well pleased. So that's, to say the least, an unexpected entrance by an almighty ruler of the universe, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. So according to the first three chapters of Luke, this is ultimately what Isaiah 40 was pointing to. Indeed, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they described the birth of Christ with the exact same terms that Isaiah 40 had used. Uh, they, they talk about uh, good news. The angel said, fear not, I bring, behold, I bring you good news. I bring you gospel. But that's what Isaiah 40 had said. You may not have noticed it in the last two weeks, but in Isaiah 40, Israel is told, look, boldly go up on that high mountain, O Zion. You're my herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Say to the world, say to Judah and the world, behold, the Lord your God is coming. This is the good news that becomes the good news of Jesus Christ. So what Isaiah 40 is ultimately talking about is what Luke 1 through 3 are talking about. And yet from these inauspicious beginnings, a baby born in a barn to impoverished refugee parents, world-changing things are going to happen. The whole landscape is being altered. Valleys are being filled. Mountains are being lowered. This is seismic type language. Um, the weak are finally going to be saved and the wicked who oppress them are going to be judged. And we read about this in, um, in, over in the, the latter part of John's speech in Luke 3. He says that the Lord's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff, these are the oppressive wicked people, always harming God's people. They're going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Now that sounds pretty negative. And then he describes it in verse 18 as good news. <laughs> so with many other exhortations, he preached good news for the people. How is that good news? The good news is if you're on God's side, you're the weak, you're the vulnerable, often walked on, marginalized. God is going to ultimately take care of your oppressors. And that is good news indeed. So we expect the unexpected. Let me sh uh, share with you this quote from uh, Fleming Rutledge that I've been uh, reading from and quoting here a lot the last couple of weeks. She says this about John the Baptist and his role. All four New Testament evangelists, that is gospel writers, agree. There is no good news. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. John's function is to proclaim the coming reversal of the downward spiral of human history, to deliver the message of the invading son of God, the whole purpose of John the Baptist is to announce the beginning of the end. His appearance on the banks of the Jordan River mean that the kingdom of God has begun. The wickedness of this world is truly doomed. The Lord of the universe is about to step on the stage of world history to reverse its course. So secondly, people who are preparing for God's coming will do their best to live in the now, as if the coming kingdom were already here, all right? Living in the now as if the coming kingdom were already here. Now, of course, the king has already come. 
But there's another sense in which King Jesus is still yet to come, at least in the fullest sense, right? Um, in Revelation, Jesus is called, quote, the one who is to come. So how do we call Jesus the one who is to come and yet present him as the king who has come in the Gospels? Which of those is true? The answer is yes. He, he has come, but there's a sense in which, an ultimate sense in which he is yet to come. Thankfully, none of us, you wouldn't be on uh, Zoom with us today if this were the case, none of us has shared the fate. We don't know anything. We haven't experienced the kind of fate that John the Baptist faces, the fate that ends his life, his beheading. But, but maybe some of us can relate to his doubt, to his questions, to seasons when it's evident that uh, the dark principalities and powers are still very much at work in this world. Indeed, the last thing that Luke chapter 3 says about John the Baptist, who is this faithful herald, herald you know, announcing God's inbreaking kingdom. The last thing said about him is that the local ruler, Herod, puts John in prison. And in chapter 7 of Luke, we find him sending messengers from jail to ask Jesus whether he is in fact the one. Daniel talked about this in his Matthew class a little bit last Wednesday. And by the way, John, uh, Jesus does not reprimand uh, John um, for asking for, for, are you the one? He's, he's not sure any longer, man. He's languishing in jail. And Jesus does not reprimand him. In fact, Jesus compliments him in Luke's account. It says, of all the men born, all the people born of women, like all humans, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty good commendation coming from the creator of the universe. That's a sidebar. Here's the point I'm making, though. We Christians, we live at the cusp of two worlds. Hear uh, a man named William Willimon talking about this. Uh, he says, our lives are eschatologically stretched between the sneak preview of the new world being born among us in the church and the old world where the principalities and powers are reluctant to give way. In the meantime, which is the only time the church has ever known, we live as those who know something about the fate of the world that the world does not yet know. And that makes us different. All right. <clears throat> okay. Um, John the Baptist is saying that preparing for God's coming then means living as if God's good future had already arrived. It means allowing God to transform us through what John calls repentance. And that's what we pick up here in Luke 3, verse 7. John says to the crowds that were coming out to be baptized by him out in the Judean wilderness, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring fruits in keeping with your repentance. You're showing up to hear me you think of yourselves as religious, you're interested in all this, but I need to see proof. I need to see transformation, fruits that prove the repentance. And when he begins to talk about this further, the crowds ask him in verse 10, what then shall we, notice this, do? I want you to notice that repentance means what we do must change. It's not just about following some movement, uh, you know, saying I approve of this or approve of that from a distance. It, it means what you do changes. What must we then do? Uh, for instance, for those in authority, 
John says, tax collectors who are coming out to be baptized to him saying, teacher, what shall we do? He says, well, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Just because you're in a position of authority, don't abuse that. To soldiers, he says in verse 14, when they say, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Don't use power corruptly. Don't use it for your own selfish purposes. That's not okay. That doesn't comport with the ethics of the kingdom of Jesus. It may be the way the world works, but he says, just because you're in positions of authority, you're going to be held accountable by the God whose kingdom will rule the world. And, and it's not just people of, of authority. It's everyone. Uh, everyone preparing to embrace this new king with his new kingdom must subscribe to a radically new ethic, for instance, regarding possessions. One of the most basic things that we do is engage, interact with physical things, possessions, money, material things, our tools, our toys, etc. Look what he says in verse 11. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to share with him. They're to do likewise. They're to share with those who do not have any. The haves are to share with the have-nots as a matter of course. He's not talking about some special group of people. He's just talking about kingdom citizens. If you're interested in the rule of the king and the kingdom of heaven, and you want to be a part of that, as a matter of course, you share with those who do not have. Kingdom people are as kingdom people do. And it's interesting to me that John the Baptist immediately, as he begins to broach the subjects of, of repentance, of, of being transformed and living as if the future kingdom were already in place everywhere, he instantly uh, contrasts true repentance with merely hiding behind a kind of religious-sounding cultural identity. Notice this. This is interesting. Why go here immediately? It must be because this is a big common uh, sort of uh, uh, counterfeit version of religiosity. He says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, Luke 3 verse 8, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is, lied, is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. So don't um, hide behind your identity in Abrahamic history, in that cultural heritage. And it doesn't matter whether it seems to have the cachet of history even, you know, this age old figure, this patriarch of Israel, Abraham with all of his clout and cachet, he says that does you no good. Uh, don't, don't try to make that claim. I need to see fruit that shows that you are repenting. Um, so even if, if, if living, uh, even if, if I'm trying to have a religious identity that, that I think has this, you know, sort of clout of history behind it, that's not really a substitute for actually living for King Jesus. That's how we prepare for his second coming, living for him. But in addition um, to open-minded expectation. In addition to transformation, we prepare for God's coming through communication, through our witness, by pointing people, thirdly, to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. This is one of the ways we prepare for God. So like John the Baptist, we must keep on announcing his coming kingdom. Keep on pointing people to the coming king. Come what may, I mean, John the Baptist does this to the bitter end. Um, we may feel at times as though no one is listening. 
we may feel as, as if no one is interested or that what passes for, quote, Christianity nowadays hardly resembles the Christ in our Bibles. Um, in other words, we may feel like we're in the wilderness and still we are to be a voice crying in that wilderness. John was, and we should be, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. We're to be ever pointing to the coming Lord, whom the gospel of Luke will now identify not just as God in general, but Jesus. The, the manifestation on earth, the incarnation of the deity. And so to keep pointing to Jesus is to prepare for the actual king, the one who will be coming in judgment and salvation. It's not some vague Judeo-Christian Western cultural heritage that will be coming to redeem me or you or anyone. It's not the religious traditions that I'm comfortable with, that I'm used to, that I'm familiar with, that, that will ultimately preside over me as king and judge me. These may or may not, these traditions may or may not look like Jesus. And Jesus is Lord. Nor is it some political package, progressive, conservative, anywhere in between, that is going to finally renew this broken world. Indeed, the language of Luke 3 and Isaiah 40 indicate that the dramatic kinds of things that will happen already are happening, that these can be accomplished by God alone. Every valley being filled, every mountain and hill being made low, crooked places becoming straight, rough places becoming level, all flesh seeing the salvation of God. These are cosmic reorderings of everything. This isn't something that some reformer is going to pull off. We should not mistake ourselves for Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Point people to the Lord. That's how we prepare. And too many, too many times the people of God have mistaken themselves for God. The followers of Christ have sort of co-opted Christ. And we shouldn't mistake ourselves, whether our tribe, our faith tradition, our ministry, for Jesus himself. Nothing substitutes for Jesus. Sure, we can claim to be loyal and faithful to God. So, so did the Pharisees. They made that claim. A lot of people thought they were righteous. Josephus tells us that they had this reputation for being especially upright. What does Jesus say about them? The test is whether they squared up with Jesus, not what claim they made or what made them feel comfortable. We may have invested countless hours uh, of work in the cause of Jesus. And so no doubt had John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist knew he was but a servant of the king, not the king, because that king was Jesus. Look what he says in John's gospel. This is the testimony. This is John 1.19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Even John the Baptist's own followers, his own disciples, he gladly relinquished to Jesus so that they might follow him, the one he had been pointing to. In verse 35 of John 1, we read the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God 
the two, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And so for John, everything pointed to Jesus, and everyone should be pointed to him. And being the person who announces that, who provides witness to this truth, this coming Christ, is one of the main ways that we can be people who are preparing. So here's the point. God has come. Light has broken into the darkness. And God continues to come. The, the, God, the, the Lord will come yet in a more uh, full and complete way. And as we live between these two arrivals, these two advents, let us learn to wait on him, to trust him at his word. Our capacity to do so will expand and expand as we learn more and more fully to behold God in all of his glory. And by preparing for our coming God, we anticipate the day when he reigns in justice and love, when finally and fully earth receives her king. Thanks a lot, folks.